we're sharing and get encouraged by, look, these are just real living, you know, real life. I mean, we're real people. Um, there's a lot about forgiveness in a marriage, a lot. I mean, forgiveness is probably the number one thing because guess what? We're sinners, and guess what sinners do? They sin, and then how do you, how do you respond to that? Well, there is where that forgiveness comes in. And, of course, not taking yourself too seriously as well. That's probably one of the biggest struggles. We, we get too uh, invested in our own egos and our pride. And, um, you know, just winning is the main, main thing for people. And, and uh, sometimes when you think of how petty it is, I remember back in high school, you know, when I was very immature, this is how it played, you know. Uh, my girlfriend gave some doubts about our continuing relationship. And uh, as soon as I thought she was doubting, well, I'm going to beat her to the punch. So I dumped her. And then when she wanted to come back and say, I was really sorry, you know, I was so proud because, you know, don't you dare, th you know, uh, uh, you know my, my ego is so big. And I look back at those times and I think, how petty, how empty, how foolish. But sadly, people take that into marriage. And uh, the last thing you want to do is that. So I thought it would be a great way to end tonight in some very practical ways um, that kind of we check our egos at the door and we intentionally think like, what is my assignment here? What, is, what does God have in mind? Every trial, every problem, every setback, everything we face, both in life and jobs and ministry and marriage, family, think of it as an opportunity rather than, you know, oh, no, this happened. As a young pastor, I used to make that mistake, thinking, you know, everything was good. It was like, okay, everything's good. We're doing all right. This is good. This is good. And when something bad would happen, oh, no, who's the ache in here? Who's the sinner? Who's the one that made this? What's going on? What's wrong? And I, and I try to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, the funny thing about getting to the bottom of things is, um, well, good luck with that. The reality is sometimes only God can get to the bottom of it. And, in fact, when I think of that, I think of the, the Ark of the Covenant, which, you know, it was in the Ark of the Covenant, a uh, copy of the law. A picture of, you know, God's expectation. But what was on top of that? What, what covered the Ark of the Covenant that, covered, that contained the law? The what? The mercy seat. And you know what happened to the men of Beth Shemesh when the Philistines put it back to them after they were getting devastated by it, and they opened it to look inside, and they died. See, sometimes when we try to take off mercy and get to the bottom of the law, Who's right? Who's wrong? I, well, I'm going to find out. What, what did you really say? I know you meant this. And we get so petty. But once you take that mercy seat off, there is no digging deep enough to get to the bottom of it. There is no way because you would have to be God yourself to get through every motive, every thought that your partner was thinking, your spouse was thinking, your friend was thinking, the other church member was thinking. And this is why grace is such a powerful thing. When you've received that grace because... Aren't you glad God does not get to the bottom of every thought and every sin and everything you've done, but he, it's washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, and that blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, and what a treasure that is. Okay, so Psalm 37, I just want to read a few things here because it ties into our theme of finding rest, and then we're going to jump right in to some practical things I think will help you. This is Psalm of David, and of course it was um, uh, inspired by a lot of the crazy wickedness was around him. Now, I think this relates both in our world today. Uh, we need to be encouraged because we can get very discouraged. If you're, in, if you're a news junkie, you're probably a very depressed individual uh, because the more you focus on all that stuff, it's, it, it's kind of like uh, those cars that have the mirrors that has a little sign be careful, objects are uh, closer than they appear. You know, imagine the other dimension where things make themselves look much bigger than they really are. Well, that's the media, that's this world, that's the devil, that's this everything about this world that makes it seem like it's so much more in charge. The nations are a drop in the bucket. They don't even weigh as dust on the scales. All of the tumult of the wicked is gonna be gone in a moment, in a flash. All of their power that they perceive they had is going to be seen as nothing. In fact, even the devil himself, the Bible describes, when we see him, we're going to wonder, is this the man who caused all the devastation on the earth for centuries, millennium? 
We're going to be standing in wonder like, really? What did we? And, and I think when we get through an argument or we get through an issue with our own family, we step back and we go, really? Why did, I got so upset about that. I, that was such a big deal. You know, but the hardest thing for us to do is to say, I, you know, for men, I was wrong. <clears throat> I, was, <clears throat> I was wrong. <laughs> hardest thing to admit. But that's really where grace begins, is when you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. When you agree with God, this is who I am. You know, I spent a lot of time, even as a, as a, as a pastor, probably too distracted with thinking so much depended upon me getting everything right. And when I'd blow it, I'd feel like, okay, I'm in the doghouse now. I've got to work my way out of this. I've got to pray harder. I've got to seek the Lord more. I've got to, I've, God's not going to bless now because I've, I wasn't faithful in this. And, and now I've, I've and I, so much of it came back to that. And I realized what a waste of time when in a second, in a second, you can be completely freed from that. You can say, Lord, I did this. I, I'm, I own that. Forgive me. I trust, and I thank you already for your forgiveness. In fact, that's what helped me overcome so many issues, so many things that had a grip on me. And what gives a grip on sin in a person's life is the law. When you live by the law, when you, like, let's say you blow it in some way. And now you actually think, well, it's not going to be working out very good for me for the next few weeks. God's going to really get me for this one. I, I, I don't deserve even for people to look at me. You know, if they knew what I said or thought or did or whatever it is that you're feeling that guilt about, you know, it's such a waste of time because it's already done. It's thank him already for forgiveness. And you know what's funny is that instead of it being what people would call cheap grace, oh, well, then you just can sin and then, you know, just immediately say, Lord, it's all done. It doesn't work that way. You know, because that's presumption. If you plan on sinning in anticipation of going, I can just say, thank you, Jesus, for your own forgiveness. It doesn't work that way because that'll mess with you. But when you genuinely, you know, you sin and you've blown it and you genuinely are repentant, you're, you, I, Lord, I don't want that. It's like he knows that. And he doesn't want you to be carrying around that burden. Just take it to him. So David's going to deal with a lot of stuff. So he writes this psalm, don't fret, verse 1, because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Those are the two big things, right? We're worried about what the elite are going to do, and we're so envious of all the power and authority and wealth they have. Don't. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. You want to rest? That's what your diet should be. Continually remembering how great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. This should be your, your theme. Trust in the Lord, dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that was the scripture I was actually going to say when I was asked about the most important scripture, you know, in marriage. I, I really think that contentedness is here. But for some reason, I went to Proverbs and 519, which is let her breast satisfy you at all times, but, and be enraptured with her love because I was thinking of marriage. It was more of a marriage thing. But that's, it's a similar choice. It's like, what, where is your delight because sin is, is always promises more than it can deliver. And it always looks more attractive than it really is. And so it's always going to appeal. Uh, when I was a young boy, I used to walk to school. And uh, on the way to school, there was this lady who had a little garden. And she grew this rhubarb. Uh, anybody know what rhubarb is? I mean, it's not something many people know. But it, it's a stalk. It's, you can have rhubarb pie. Rhubarb strawberry pie is amazing. But I like to eat it. I liked it really tart. So I'd sneak over the fence. I'd grab a piece of rhubarb. And I'd walk home eating the rhubarb. And one day after school, I, I got over the fence. I grabbed some rhubarb. And I turned around. And there was the woman of the house. Young man. I've been watching you steal my rhubarb. And I'm like, yeah, yes, ma'am. I was terrified, caught. And she said, you don't have to steal it. 
I've got so much of it, I don't know what to do with it. I'll be happy to give you some rhubarb. And he said, I'll even give you a plant to take home and plant it in your own garden. So I'm on my way home with a rhubarb that I can plant and stalks of rhubarb. And I'm like, wow. Except for one thing that was really strange. After that, I didn't really care for rhubarb that much. It was only tasty when it was stolen. You know, the proverb, stolen water is sweet. The thing that you can't have is always has a more appeal. And the reality is that's always true. And that's why I tell men, be careful of pornography as Christians because it's highly, much more highly addictive for Christians than for non-Christians. And the reason is because when you have this sense of doing something wrong and you're sneaking to do it, it adds the height of pleasure when you satisfy that sin. Where most people, it's like, well, pornography is everything. Everybody does it. You know, they're looking at it. It's like no big deal. They're not, it doesn't get as powerfully addictive for many people that aren't Christians. But when you know it's wrong, stolen water is sweet. Oh, it's pleasurable. So here's what we need to be feeding on. His faithfulness and delighting ourselves in Him. And then verse 5 really comes to the theme of really what we've been talking about. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and he shall bring it to pass. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, and don't fret. It only causes harm. And of course, he goes on about how the end of the wicked will be the what it will end, but verse 16 says, a little that the righteous man has is better than the riches of the many wicked. Steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He concludes with some other thoughts in verse 23. He delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him in his hand. And he remind, reminds himself, I've seen nobody that's righteous ever dip, ever forsaken by the Lord. The Lord is faithful. And so in verse 34, he says, wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. So, you know, you come back to this basic theme is that your rest is in the Lord. And because your rest is there, you're committed to that. You're going to commit your ways to him. You're going to trust in him in this way. This is the key, you know, in grace. Now, we talked a little bit about intimacy today at the panel, and I just want to remind you, who was it that brought it up? My wife, just saying. But it's true, you know, that, that part of our lives is very important, and, and, and I guess someone had asked me, you know, like, you know, practically, you know, I mean, how often do couples have intimacy together? And uh, I typically go by, and I'm going to embarrass my wife with this, of course. In fact, she's turning red right now. But I go by the T-roll. It's very simple. Tuesdays and Thursdays. There's your, there's your rule. Of course, there's Tatterday and Tunday. And, uh, and today and tomorrow. <laughs> I, just, I just had to throw that out. So you got the T rule there. You know, it's interesting when the Lord is in the center, how there's such a powerful picture. Now, I don't know how many of you speak Hebrew or know Hebrew. I, I know very little but what I do study is kind of interesting, the language, the, the letters, everything has meaning. And it's such a rich, powerful language. In, in fact, when you think of our alphabet comes out of the Aleph and the Bet, the first two letters of the Hebrew language, Aleph, Bet, we get alphabet. But when you start building the language on these letters, it's really interesting because Aleph is like the first, and it would be drawn in the ancient way, the horns of an ox, like the first of the beasts was the strongest. And uh, that represented the Aleph. And the Bet, which also is why they tend to be prone to calf worship, because that represented God, this the first. Well, Aleph was that Bet, of course. Anybody know what Hebrew Bet is representing? Bet Shemesh, Bethlehem, house. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bet Shemesh, the house of the sun. It, it's house. So Aleph is first, and then Bet is house. Now you put the two together, 
A-B-B-A, what does that spell? Abba. What does that mean? Father, because you take the first in the house, you have father. Well, there's another word that really is powerful because it's the word for love in Hebrew. It's the aleph and the bet sandwiched on the outside or sandwiching the inside the word ha, which is the very breath, the life of God. So you have love, the first in the house that has the very presence of God in it. This is what we do when we learn love in marriage. We learn love in friendship. We learn love by loving, you know, people to give the truth, to speak the truth in love. This is really what it comes down to, and what an amazing, profound truth this is. So let's come back to this concept of resting in Him. What does it mean to rest, to wait patiently, to to find our rest in Him? It, It really means to know He settled the debt. You don't have to dig around in that law anymore and and get to the bottom of all the evil in your heart. It's there. And and literally, as you keep growing in the Lord, sometimes it bubbles up. You know, as you're growing, sometimes through a trial, junk will come up. Instead of looking at like, I can't believe I still think that way. I can't believe it's still in my heart. Why should you be surprised? We have no idea the depth of our depravity. If we really, I mean, all the little ways that we cover ourselves and look good in front of people and others, and even ourselves, we don't really know ourselves very well. But he does. He knows all of the dirty secrets. And that's what's so powerful about coming to him. Full acceptance because he's forgiven it. So this is really the key for us, this idea of grace. There's only one marriage problem, really. It's sin. There's only one marriage solution. It's, it's run to God's grace for his forgiveness. You know, the idea of that is repentance. Change your mind about that sin, about what you thought about God, what you think about yourself, and align your hearts and your mind with what God has revealed in his word. And this is where grace is so powerful. This is where grace is so powerful. Grace truly does change things. I love Chuck Smith's book on that. It really is powerful. One of the amazing stories is he went to visit a man in his church that was very involved and very plugged in, but he left his wife, his beautiful family, a beautiful home, and he starts shacking up with this woman. And Chuck went to visit him, and, and when Chuck knocked on the door, the man opened, and he was kind of shocked. He was embarrassed, and Chuck was brokenhearted looking at this 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 broken down house he had a beautiful home and wife and children and here he is you know satisfying his lust in this and he came in and it was really awkward and Chuck didn't even know what to say he was like he saw the woman there and he just he he started to weep he couldn't even talk and he had to excuse himself and leave and he was walking home and he just felt he failed God Lord I, I couldn't even say anything well as it turned out the man was so moved by Chuck's genuine love and care for him without even a word he left that woman went back to his wife and and i think sometimes we forget it's the kindness of god that leads us to repentance you know you're not going to change your mind about sin with some heavy hand upon you of some guilt thing but you will when you understand in a moment you're forgiven so what is it you did last night? What did you do this week? What, what is it that's on your heart that you kind of just are ashamed about, you're holding on to? Why are you holding on to it? Why don't you immediately take it to the cross and say, Lord, I accept what you did for me, and I thank you for forgiving me. And give me the strength and wisdom to avoid that. As a young man, I struggled with pornography in the past. And the wild thing is, I'd, I'd go a week or two and... You know, but then I'd, curiosity would get me, and then I'd get hooked, and I'd, then I'd feel so horrible, and so I felt like God was not even going to look at me for, you know, a week or so, and I was kind of praying even more and seeking the Lord and didn't realize how much I was depending upon my works instead of His grace. But what happened is it, it was the same pattern. It kept over and over again. Same thing, same thing. You know, go for a while, then I'd, then I'd break, and then I'd feel ashamed, and I'd beat myself up for a while, and then I'd, I'd, I'd stay away from it, and then eventually I'd stumble again. And the wildest thing is, it was such a horrible pattern. It's kind of every man's battle, and so many times, guys don't overcome this. Let me tell you how it was overcome. 
completely. It dawned on me this picture of grace, one moment when I succumbed to my lusts, and I had this picture of God's hand and grace, instead of that judgment, instead of his disappointment in me, instead of all the, you know, frustration that, you know, he must feel toward me and, you know, how all that's going to even be used, you know, you've been down this road before, you know, why should I even use you anymore? I'm going to expose you. I mean, all that stuff I thought God was thinking, it dawned on me. The cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, already washed this sin. And it was the weirdest thing. I just looked up and moments after, I said, thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. I'm going to walk in that. And, you know, something was broken. The power, the chains were broken in that day. And the most powerful thing happened. All of a sudden, it didn't have that same power. And I, in fact... It made me even, because when you stumble in those areas, it affects other areas. It affects how you look at women. It affects how you, you know, are, are around. And all of a sudden, I just began looking at people and differently, seeing them through Christ's eyes. And as I mentioned to you before, it's impossible to lust after a woman's body at the same time you're praying for her soul. And so it was like grace just totally eradicated that. Now, it didn't mean that it was always perfect, but it lost its chain, it was broken. And it was not long afterwards, pretty much it's gone. Because it was like, it was one of those eras, you know, and this is years ago, but it was still a very powerful thing. I still remember how, how grace, discovering his grace was so powerful. So let's just sum up a few things on marriage because really we're, we're gonna be taking some of this stuff to the cross tonight, you know, as Zach is gonna lead us in communion. And uh, what a powerful thing that is, as you see the, the, the cup and the bread on your tables, uh, you're going to partake of this together uh, with not just your spouse, but really, I mean, we are all one body together. We rejoice in what he's done for us. But this is a great opportunity to think of all those things that you've been holding on to. This is where you basically lay it down, because this is a reset button. Every time you have communion, it's like a reset button where you've gotten away from his grace and you realize it's his blood, not your blood. It's his pain, not your pain, that pays for anything. And so you come and you can be totally free from it. But let's go back to this thought about uh, foundational, where Paul even, or, or David, he says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. Those two things go hand in hand. It's hard to commit to the Lord without trusting him. In fact, you know, in John 15, when he basically says, you know, uh, you know bear, fruit, bear fruit, because by this your Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. But the question comes in, how do you bear fruit? Well, Jesus said, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. So abiding in him, being tight with the Lord who covers all of your battles, you have this amazing fruit that, well, it's not works, it's fruit. Fruit happens. You know, works you have to work for. But you abide in Jesus, much fruit, and you glorify God. You bring him the greatest glory. But how do you abide in Christ? Here's the thing that if you look closely at John 15, he says something that's really interesting to the disciples. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And I thought, wow, that's pretty powerful. That's obedience. Obedience is key to abiding. But obedience isn't abiding by the law. It's, it's actually the opposite. I'm obeying the gospel I'm obeying, do you know that the Ten Commandments was reduced to two, right? You know what they are, right? Love God and love your neighbor, right? Well, you know, those two are really reduced to one. There's only one real commandment that has been given to everyone everywhere around the world, and that is to repent and believe the gospel, which is all really one move. It's change your mind about all of your stuff and believe what he did for you. That's the one requirement. And the amazing thing is that with the Spirit of God, he, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you when you don't walk by the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
It's fulfilled in you, not by you, fulfilled in you. It's, it's about this grace. It's about a powerful grace. So the idea of this abiding comes from obedience, but the obedience, what do I obey? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, what did he narrow those commandments down as you unfold the gospel? He, he narrowed that commandment down to believe what he did. And there's so much more power in that than trying to follow some law. And so, all right, how are you going to obey? How do you obey, obey somebody you don't trust? This is where the commitment and the trust go hand in hand. They're connected. And as you trust, well, okay, let's go back even farther. How do you trust? How do you trust somebody that you don't know? This is where a lot of Christians get stumbled because they haven't taken the time to really get to know the mind and heart of God. This, this is his mind right here. This is his heart. He's revealed this in his love letter to us. This is really what it's about. And when you take the time to just get to know him. See, I don't read. People think I read the Bible, um, you know, that you read the Bible for God. You know, I've read a lot of verses, you know, God is going to bless me. Uh, I read this week. Oh, I didn't read today. It's going to be a horrible day. This is always Satan's, you know, way to suck us into this work system. The reality is I don't read the Bible for God. I read it for me. I need it. I need his word. I don't pray for God. I pray for me. I, I need prayer to connect with God, his gracious provision in prayer, and his word. And look, when you, when you get to know him more and more, like if some stranger on the street said, hey, could you lend me $100? I'll, I'll see you here probably next week and I'll give it to you. Would you give him $100? No, because you don't know who it is. But if a good friend said, hey, could you give me $100? I'll get it to you back. You know, you know who they are. You know they're good for their word. Not a problem. You're going to give them the 100 if you have it. How do you trust somebody you don't know? When, when you get to know him, this is where a lot of Christians have a hard time trusting God. They're just not that familiar with his amazing faithfulness. He keeps his word. You can bank that. You can trust that and know that he will forgive you. He will, he'll cover your sin. And he'll also be help, faithful to help you avoid those pitfalls. And you trust him because you know him. But how do you get to know him? Be available. You know, maybe there's some people here you want to get to know. It'll be really hard to get to know them unless you ever, unless you make yourself available to get to know them. But when you make yourself available, you'll get to know the Lord. In his word, fellowship, prayer, you know, sharing the word, you're going to see God work in so many ways, you're going to get to know him. And the more you know him, the more you're going to trust him. The more you trust him, the more you'll obey. The more you obey, you'll abide. And by abiding, you're going to bear much fruit. And thus, you're going to be doing the very purpose of your being, which is to glorify God. So this really comes to, to bear in, in marriage because when you think about marriage, it's a type of Christ. We commit our way to the Lord. And like I mentioned before, that 10-year study in University of Texas a number of years ago where they determined that commitment was the number one reason why people stayed married. They just felt they should, they had to, they ought to stay married, they want to stay married. You know, in other words, it was just ingrained in them. They didn't want to fail at it. But there's a couple of other things that sidetrack marriages. One is, and in the same university study, they discovered that recently married couples are not in newlywed bliss. And those with the highest intensity of romance at the beginning are at the greatest risk of their marriage failing in the end. Which I think was pretty cool because, you know, honestly, I was kind of embarrassed when, I mean, I liked Karen a lot and she's pretty and, you know, I, but, but it wasn't like I had this, I can't live without her. But I saw her as a godly woman who believed that, you know, in the Lord she feared God and I feared God and I knew that we would we'd be a good team together and, and let's see what God will do. And when we got married, again, we didn't really have that strong of a love. We grew to love each other. As I got to know her more uh, and, you know, she got to know me more and we prayed for each other and 
We've seen God work in our lives and use us. We grew together. So just keep that in mind. Secondly, a person expecting bliss is most likely to leave. And unhappy periods in marriage are not an indication of future unhappiness. And by the way, this was the most significant part of the study. 86% of unhappy people, unhappy married couples, who stayed together were happier, much happier after five years. That's pretty powerful. 86%, those registered very unhappy, when they stuck it out, they ranked high in happiness. Why? Well, it's very simple. They had to dig down deep in the roots. They had to dig into that commitment. They had to personality of, they had to overlook things, they had to get along, they had their, their conflicting, grading personalities that got into those nerves. They had to learn to accept it. And because of that, they deepened. And mind you, I really believe any area where you have to commit deeply, it changes you, and you are more mature as a result of it. It's commitment. One person put it this way, you've, do you want to, you, how do you want to feel? How do you want to feel? You want to have feelings of happiness in your marriage and love and affection? Um, anybody would want to do that. But act how you want to feel then. This is kind of the Christian way. This is what this study came up to, but the reality is this is a Christian concept. You, you want to feel loving, act loving. Now, this is kind of strange at first. There was a woman that was ready for a divorce. She hated her husband. She just despised him, couldn't stand him. She was ready to leave. And she called one of her friends who happened to be a Christian and basically said, I, I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I got to get out of this marriage. And her Christian friend says, well, you know, look, he's really messed with you. You, you really want to get back with him? I got, a, I got a good idea. He says, why don't you do this? Why don't you for the next month treat him like a king? Give him all his favorite foods. Keep the house clean. Be at his beck and call. Just do whatever you can for him. And, uh, and at the end of 30 days, then tell him you want a divorce. It'll kill him. And she thought, ooh, I like that. <laughs> so she began to do this. And about two weeks in, her friend called her. So how's it going? Are you ready to divorce him? Are you ready to pop that and let him really dig in? Now, the Christian knew what was really going to happen. The woman said, divorce, are you kidding? We're madly in love with each other. What had happened? She began acting love, and her feelings began to follow. He began to respond to that love, and he began to act love, and even more, his feelings followed. And the amazing thing, it was, it's based on action. This is why it's so simple in many ways. If you sit around and wait till you feel differently to do something, you're going to do nothing. This is the same thing in the church. Listen, I'm speaking on behalf of your pastor and other pastors here. You know, people are so afraid to make a commitment. But it's the very thing that they need. You do not want to, you know, only do the things you feel like doing at the time. That's why a lot of people sign up late for things because they're kind of keeping their options open. If something better happens, I don't, I don't want to be committed over here. And when I could have done this, come on. In your mind, you know what is the best, what is right, what is, what is the most productive. And, and if you ever get in those feelings, which I had going to Hollywood Boulevard, like I don't want to feel like I have to do something I don't want to do, get over yourself. Do it. By the way, I want, I want to encourage every one of you should be committed somewhere, somehow, for something, where somebody's dependent upon you for something. Okay, As small as it might be. You know, there was a guy that used to pick up trash outside of Calvary Costa Mesa. You know, he just did it on his own. He wanted, to, he wanted the place to be beautiful, so he took it upon himself. And he didn't, he wasn't hired to do it. He just did it as a ministry. And then he called the leadership one time and says, hey, listen, I'm terribly sorry. I'm going to be going in the hospital for an operation. I won't be around for, you know, it could be 20, 30 days. And I'm sorry, I won't be there to pick up the trash. He took that responsibility for it, even though no, he wasn't officially on the, on the pay. I, I think it's just a great picture for us. We need to, if you want to change, look, you cannot change the way you feel. Can I say that? You cannot change how you feel, but you can change what you do. And when you do that, it will change how you feel. And you can't change how your spouse feels. Can't do it. 
your spouse doesn't love you anymore, nothing you can do. You can't get it back by arguing, manipulating, tears, threats. But when you choose to love them in spite of it, when you choose to love, you act loving or you'll die. This is the key. And listen, you might have somebody that's really hard to love, okay? Look, you, you might not have married well. Can we, can we accept that? I mean, maybe some here feel they did very well. I, I made a decision. It wasn't the best decision at the time. I thought it was, but, you know, I thought he was really going to go to church with me or really be there. I thought she was really on fire for the Lord, or I thought, but I made a mistake. Okay, so what do you do with that? So you didn't marry well. So what? How about those arranged marriages that used to be? How did they get along? They learned to love. They learned to forgive. They learned how to make it work because it was just part of the culture. You had to do that. You, you, you're committed, and that's what a Christian is. You're committed to make it work. And I really believe that many times we're in those places where, and Karen and I, I mean, we've in some knockdown, drag out fights and arguments early in our marriage, you know, at first, you know, we, we would say things like really hurtful, like, well, maybe, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we should just, maybe we just be apart. Let's just leave. We'd use that D word. And I tell you, it hurts because it cuts at the very foundation of your commitment that you made. By the way, you ever think of that? You're madly in love with each other. Why do you go before the preacher and you give these elaborate vows? I vow to this. I vow. I'll love you as Christ loves you. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'm making this commitment, this promise. Why do you do that? You're like, I don't need that. I love her. No, you do that because in your worst moments, you're going to forget that feeling you once had. So you keep your commitment. And then that feeling will follow the commitment. That's essentially how it works. So you got somebody hard to love. Can I give you an encouragement on that? We had a, a son that was very hard to love in his rebellion. When he was up to 10 years old, he was so knowledgeable, so smart. He knew the Bible better than any of my elders. He was like brilliant. And he was such, I mean, I thought he was I mean, going to be some missionary to Petra. Something turned in him where he didn't want to be the goody good. And man, it turned bad. He was rebelling like you can't believe, and we're, we're like shocked every time we hear some other thing, and it can't be, it can't be, because I thought my daughter was going to be the hard one. <laughs> she seemed to always be, you know, a little stubborn. And she, she ended up walking with the Lord and keeping with him. My son just went down the dark side, and, but he was so smart. He would pick up philosophical books in high school, on, uh, in, even in junior high, Nietzsche, he hunts dead, and these deep philosophical things that most people who read may not understand what he's trying to say, he understood it, and he tried to live by it. Nietzsche was kind of an honest atheist in that he believed that we can't pretend there's meaning if there is no real meaning, so we might as well just kill ourselves because there's no real meaning to life. And my son had that ideation. He had this hate, self-hatred. He, had this, he couldn't be around family because that's just an illusion that there's meaning. So he had to purposely build up this hatred for us, even though there was no reason for it. And he just make it up. 20 years, 20 years of rebellion and post-traumatic stress syndrome. I got to tell you, we went through it. But you know what? We just kept loving in that time when his heart turned and it looked like, you know, he was finally ready to listen and broken and he I asked him, would you go up to this thing? And he went up, and God just got a hold of his heart and uh, wrote some things down of everybody should have parents like I have and, you know, began to love us. And we developed a close friendship. He came back, but he was still damaged. So here's, here's how this commitment worked out. I hope none of you are ever in this painful thing, but for the three years he stayed with us after he came back from that program, uh, it was really, really hard because he, as much as he had changed, he had damaged himself so much. Uh, he was on full disability from the Air Force. I mean, it was just a real tough. He would, had emotional just breakdowns, and he would just fly off. Any little thing that set him off would just like, you'd walk on eggshells, literally walk on an eggshells because if you said the wrong thing, he'd fly off in a rage and just curse you out. And I learned something. Uh, I was so proud of how far he had come when he would... When mom would tick him off by saying something, or I would, and he'd just curse us out, and then he'd walk out the door, I, 
I learned something. I, I remember going after him and saying, Jeremy, listen, I'm so proud of how far you've come and what God has done in your life and how hard I know you're trying to fight this thing that I didn't even hear what you said. And I tell you, that gave him such comfort that he could come back in the house and he could be soothed. And uh, this went on for a while. Let me say it was not easy. I was walking on eggshells, but eventually it broke through and we saw less and less of that breakdown until eventually he was able to get his own place. And then COVID hit and he had a lot of depression that hit in and and eventually, you know, passed in that accident. But I, I got to, which some of the police officers believe it might have even been purposeful and it very well may have been because he was starting to take this Ambien and it really messed him up. My whole point of this whole story is this. That commitment, it's hard. You may have a very hard person to be with in marriage, but as I look at what God did in my wife and I, as painful as that was, as hard as that was, he changed us. He deepened us in ways I can't even quantify. And he's given us such patience for other situations. And so it's kind of like that old, that old fable, the parable of the young the father who goes, tells his son, you know, that there's this big rock in the road and it needs to be pushed out and go push it away. So the son is straining against this boulder, straining to push it out. Every day, you know, he'd go out there, you got you to move that rock, you got to move that rock. And the son would go out there and he was getting nothing done. And finally, after months, he said, this is useless. What good is this? And the father pointed to the, man, the young man that made us and said, look at those muscles that you've developed. And then I would want to say to you that maybe the Lord knows how you need to develop a deeper patience, a deeper forgiveness, a deeper love. So he's entrusted somebody that's particularly challenging. And you may never have the, the light fairy tale wedding that you'd hoped. But you know what? God is deepening you. I, I couldn't argue with God about what, what God, I always, I see these other pastors, their sons replace them in the ministry. You know, I see Zach and I, I always wanted that for my son. I always wanted that for him to be healed and to be moved and, and God had other plans. Listen, I, he could have been a paraplegic. He could have had this. He could have had that. Whatever it is, Lord, you have, you've done something in us so deep and I want to challenge you in your own marriages. This is really what this commitment comes down to. And, and listen, the same kind of commitment comes to sometimes how difficult it is to follow the Lord, to obey Him, to trust Him. When the world is pressuring you so over here, you make up your mind ahead of time, I'm not going down that road. I've already, I've already determined, you know, we, what we're going to do when it gets really rough. And I'm already arming myself, like Peter said, to arm yourself to suffer because I think we're going to get more and more pain in our world. And we can't be lightweights. We're going to have to be ready for some burdens. And maybe God is using certain things in your life now to equip you and get you ready. Because who can tell what the Lord has in mind? You're pushing against the rock. Seems like nothing's changing but you're changing. You just don't notice it. The largest complaint I hear as a pastor is often, well, we don't, we're not in love anymore. We're not in love anymore. Really. So what? What does that mean? Love isn't how you feel. It's love is what you do. The feelings will follow when you make actions of love. And I really believe this is key. And we take ourselves way too seriously when we are trusting in how much we feel at any given time. It doesn't matter. You know, I came across these 25 um, practical suggestions in marriage, and I thought, these are interesting from a secular study. But then I realized I compared it to this whole theme of finding rest in the Lord, being filled with the Spirit, His grace, when... I mentioned about being filled with the Spirit. I, I know when I'm filled with the Spirit, but I don't always know when I'm not. In Ephesians, Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit. Be continually filled with the Spirit. So there's this part of which the only the Holy Spirit can do. He can come upon us. But there's another aspect of that filling where we are yielding ourselves to His influence. I am choosing to be filled with His Spirit. And I'll do that if... I know I may not be filled right now. 
But that's the problem. Sometimes I don't know when I'm not. There's, so practically speaking, there's three things he gives in Ephesians. If you turn to Ephesians 5, just to, I'm going to close with this thought, and then we're going to have some time to reset our hearts with the Lord in communion. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, do not, be, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a reason he makes that contrast, because when we get inebriated, we have a sense of lightness, of boldness, of courage, a sense we can do anything. It's a false sense because it's destroying the higher centers of your brain. It's suppressing them, so you lose your judgment, you lose your insight, you do crazy things. Um, Herod, in her, under a drunken state, would give half of his kingdom away to a belly dancer. I mean, that's just how stupid alcohol makes you. But it does give you that sense of power and, and feeling, which is why people get addicted to it. But that leads to dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to verse 19, 20, and 21. And each of those verses give, an, give one clue as to what would you expect if you are filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's a good indication. What is happening with your speech, your words, your communication? When you're under the influence of the Spirit, you're not going to be giving unkind, saying unkind things. You're not going to be rude. You're not going to be, you know, um, full of yourself. You're, you're going to be singing your heart. You're not going to be frustrated with that. There's, there's a sense that, wow, Lord, you're on the throne. So your words. Then also, verse 20 he says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now your attitude of thanksgiving, gratitude, the, the sense of thank you, Lord. And I tell you, that's probably the thing that saved me the most because I was a worrier by nature. I was an analyzer. I always analyzed things, and I'd, my computer would break if I couldn't figure out, you know, a course of action. And so many things, when they'd go wrong, I'd be so frustrated so when I find myself complaining, I'm getting behind somebody slow, driving in the left lane, talking to the car in front of me, where'd you get your driver's license? McDonald's, lady, get over, you know? And, and, I, and I find myself, what's coming out of my mouth and my attitude, something's off. I can, I can immediately go, ding. Ah, Lord, thank you for showing me. That's me, that's my natural. So, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and I pray you fill me with your spirit right now. Because that's the funny thing, it's the easiest thing in the world to get filled with the spirit, just ask. If you believe in him, just ask. We, it's easy to get filled, it's just the problem is we leak a lot. But we don't know we've leaked. So these are the clues, our words, our attitude, and then the final one is verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. When we take that road where we don't have to fight for our rights ourselves, when we yield, and by the way, isn't it ironic? He speaks about this filling of the Holy Spirit and being submitted to one another in the fear of God. Guys, you've memorized the next verse. How about looking at this one? Do you know that I, Lord, it's perfectly legitimate for me to submit to my sister in the Lord and things the Lord is showing her and to give her deference and yield to something she might, and having that, that, that mutual submission. When he gets to marriage, yes, in the marriage thing, the wives are submitting to the husbands, something they choose to do, but this is a part of, long after we are no longer husband and wife, we will forever be brother and sister. That relationship is transcendent. And in this regard, as a brother and sister, I, it's legitimate for me at times to submit to my wife in the fear of God. To have a sense the Lord is behind what you're saying. You know, I'm going to yield to that. I'm going I'm to hear what you're saying. I used to think that a husband had to be the one that made all the decisions. You know, that's crazy. The reality is I'll be responsible in the marriage ultimately. But a wise manager will listen to those people around him. 
So now I'm going to get to those 25, and I'm going to run through them through quick because I want you to compare them to these three because really all comes down to this. One is, you know, these are some things you don't want to do. You don't want to show constant disappointment in your partner. Well, if you remind yourself with that it's the Lord's gift to you and, and what he might be doing in you, you're going to give thanks. Thank you, Lord. You're going to work this out. Uh, when you succumb to disillusionment, your expectations are not met. And again, another thing, if you're unthankful, something you just need to be filled with the Spirit. If you have a defeatist attitude, you give up too early. Again, unthankfulness. When you don't do what you'll say you do. Okay, now your words are a little bit off. You're not keeping your word. Um, when your pride and being right is more important than really listening. Well, again, lack of submitting to one another. When you're not honest. Again, words. When, you're, when you let anger and resentment rule. Again, not thankful. When you're hurtful and put your spouse down even in front of others. Words. See, all of these, uh, this whole entire list of 25 I could go through, all come back to these three, which all comes back to his grace. He died on the cross for us. He paid the penalty for our sin. He's given to those who believe this gift of the Holy Spirit. But how little we trust in that leading of the Spirit, or we're foolish enough to think we have it, and, you know, people talk about the initial and the experience of the Spirit and the whole thing, subsequent fillings. Uh, to me, I don't get into the theological debate on it. I do believe that there is that Holy Spirit, you know, baptism, but the real key that I would say for every one of us is just every day, ask Him to fill you. If there's anything hindering that, because you can't live the Christian life as his witness apart from his supernatural wisdom and strength, which will help you to not compromise and, and fight fair and be willing to change and to not focus on the negative things and to not be physical or abu verbal abusive or, or not let alcohol or some substance you know, hinder you. I mean, we could go on and on with all of these things, but listen, all of this comes down to this. Commit your ways to the Lord Find your rest in him. He's going to bring it to pass. Father, thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Thank you for the time we spent together. And I pray that, Lord, as we look at these things, that there'd be some helpful things that uh, the couples that you brought here that had a desire to invest in their marriage and enjoy each other and enjoy you, I pray, Lord, your abundant treasure of grace and power would be poured out. Guide us, Lord, in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.